Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to a special episode. Uh, I am joined today by Jonathan Healy. Jonathan is an associate professor in social history at Kellogg College, the University of Oxford, and has written a really good book, which you know quite a lot about already because I keep quoting it at you. Anyway, hello, Jonathan. Hi, David. How are you doing? It's lovely to be on today. I'm very well, actually. I'm very good. Everybody, Jonathan was also my tutor, course leader of a course called English Local and Social History, an undergraduate diploma, which I did at the lovely Continuing Education Department at Oxford, which I absolutely loved. So you know all about my historical weaknesses, Jonathan, but you're not to expose them in front of the population. (laughs) I've read some of your essays and I have to say, listeners, they are Ah. extremely good. They were extremely good. (laughs) Excellent. Fiver in the post. I can can list off David's marks if you want. I mean, I don't think that'd be appropriate, (laughs) but I could do it. Let's not do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jonathan, you uh, just to tell you a few Jonathan facts. Um, you've written about the poor laws, famine and food shortages, courts, history of common land, which is a lot of interest to me, actually, because we did a little episode here with the Open Spaces Society. I'm also sure that uh, somewhere you describe yourself as northern, but that might have been Twitter. And I've always actually wondered how northern are we talking? I mean, obviously, north of Wolf- Watford Gap, I doesn't <laughs> count, but... How northern are we talking here? Well, it's a very complicated question. I was born in Leeds oh, uh, and I still okay. um, I still maintain the ancestral Leeds United curse. Um, ah, you poor um, thing. I gave I was... up on that and moved to Derby, actually. <laughs> when I was five, we moved down to um, to Dorset, lived down um, by the sea oh. in uh, Christchurch, which was lovely. Um, and then we spent a bit of time in Kent and then we moved back to Lancashire. So um, right. I, I kind of, you know, I'm... I'm transpennine, um, right. but, uh, but I still, yeah, still, still have the ancestral curse, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I mean, you know, it's, it's like being part of a cult, uh, Leeds United fan. You just can't escape. Yeah, not that you'd want to. No, well, I, try being a Derby fan, anyway. Well, I mean, yes, <laughs> I'll get my binoculars out, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> Rude, right? Uh, anyway, yes. So, writing is your trade as well as researching, and the 17th century is what you're all about. I should mention that the title of Jonathan's book, because I don't think I've said it yet, is called The Blazing World. Brilliant book it is too. And I shall pour compliments on it um, in, a, in a wee while. But the 17th century is obviously your thing, Jonathan, is it? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, firstly, it's just an incredibly fascinating period. But I I mean, there's lots of fascinating periods out there, as I'm sure, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, and especially your listeners. Um, but uh, I was kind of put onto it by um, an exceptionally 
old fashioned school teacher back in the um, oh, yeah. back in the late noughties, basically. Sorry, in, right. sorry, in the late nineties. I'm not that young. Uh, <laughs> the late nineties. Um, <laughs> I think you'd have got away with it, Jonathan. You'd have got oh, away. Do you with think? It. Okay, okay. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Of you, oh, nice yeah. of you oh, say. Yeah. So he taught us about the um, the. Well, the English, I think he called it the English Civil War, but we did about the, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms is, is the other way that we call it. It was very old fashioned. He showed us acetate slides of, you know, kind of stained glass windows and stuff like that and gave us a narrative of the Bishop's Wars in 1639 and 1640. And I was absolutely hooked. You know, I came right. at it as a teenager thinking that the only interesting bits of history were basically the Second World War because they had they had planes. Yes. And, you know, it was all that in the films. And I was thrust into this kind of, you know, very different period where it was sort of, you know, it was all a bit weird. They're all worried about the church. They didn't have proper guns, um, definitely no planes. And it was all very confusing. And I just got hooked. I just got hooked because it, it was just detailed and it was fascinating and i remember one of the things most vividly about this this teacher i remember one student it wasn't me said said to him look you know you're telling us all about this kind of complicated stuff about you know altar rails and things like that but would ordinary people have really cared about it and he said yes they would you know we've got to understand that this is a world in which ordinary people could watch Shakespeare and understand the jokes. Uh, and that's not something that we find very easy today. So it no. really kind of challenged me to, to get away from this idea of history as progress and, and, and the idea that we are more intelligent than our ancestors. We may know more than our ancestors, but we're not necessarily more intelligent than they are. And kind of, you know, that pulled me into this very obscure and, and, and challenging world. And I did a yes. talk at a school this time last week, actually. And one of the students in the class I'd just been talking about this kind of cross-dressing wedding that I start the book with and another occasion where there's this official official announcement by Parliament and one of the royalist ministers in London mocks it by reading it out in a silly voice. And this student said, look, this period is just really goofy. I, I don't get it, you know. And it was such a good way of thinking about it because the humour, the worldview is actually surprisingly different to our own. And as historians, we have to really kind of throw ourselves into that, which in a sense is also one of the great things about the period, because we're constantly bombarded today with history books, which promise to, by looking at the past, give us lessons for the present and things like that. And I'm not against that per se, but actually there is something to be said as a historian or as an intelligent historical reader, which is what my, my audience hopefully is, which is to, to look at a society which is extremely different to our own. And yeah, OK, we look at that, those differences and we think, well, they do tell us something about our own society. But also we want to explore that world on its own terms. It's a bit like being thrown into a sort of fantasy world on TV where things are a bit different. They, they do have different traditions. They do have different ideas. They have different ways of thinking about the world. But they're still intelligent and they're, they're still thoughtful. That thing about understanding an old world, I was going to ask you actually what you found most difficult explaining to people about this very different world. I personally have found the religion thing the hardest by a long way, which is interesting, as you say, that you open your book with this really fascinating effect in Cartmel, isn't it? In Cumbria, am I right? It, uh, it well, it's right Cumbria now, but it's Lancashire. In um, I'm, I'm a priest, right. oh, pre-1974 okay. guy, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's Lancashire for me. OK, a bit <laughs> like Saddleworth then. Yes, exactly, exactly like Saddleworth, although <laughs> at least this one was Lancashire and, and Cumbria rather than Lancashire and Yorkshire. So. <laughs> um, but, yes, so, very, very similar. So, yeah, I mean, I, f- I found that very difficult to communicate, I think. And people, I don't know, what did you find most difficult to communicate anyway about the 17th century? It's a really interesting question. It's, and it's interesting that you brought up religion, because I'm actually, I'm thinking quite a lot about this with my new book as well, because it's about the moment that the Civil War starts in England. And there is, you know, there's sort of long-standing debate as to whether this is primarily about religion or whether there's more you know constitutional legal questions about it and in the 19th century i think you know people like gardner who himself was you know from a dissenting background so very much in the sort of re- religious kind of mindset would have seen it as axiomatic that there were real constitutional issues at stake but i think that interestingly enough in our own allegedly secular world I think that has fallen out a little bit. And actually, there's more of a belief, I think, today 
that this is fundamentally a religious conflict between two very different interpretations of, you know, for want of a better word, Anglicanism. I'm sort of trying to move away from that a little bit. And I think ironically, our own society finds it easier to understand religious passions than it does passions about, say, the common law. I think that's one of the things which is most, funnily enough, is most distant about that society. The idea that they would have this kind of really, you know, almost religious view about legal tradition and constitutional and legal maxims, which to us feels very strange. And and I think um, the amount of kind of day-to-day constitutional legal knowledge that people had in the 17th century is vastly greater than it is amongst people today. I think I think actually people have more sense of religion than they do of law in our own society. And that's partly because we've kind of hived off law to you know, a class of legal professionals. But it's also, I think, because the law is more settled now. But in, in say, 1600, anyone who was likely to go into Parliament, so we're talking about you know, men of a certain class, basically, or indeed anyone who had to run an estate, and that would be men and women. And it would be, you know, people who even had quite a small estate, like sort of yeoman farmers, would have to have a rudimentary uh, legal knowledge. And that would bring them into contact with ideas like the difference between common law and, and equity, the difference between common law and natural law, and the difference between the king's prerogative and the law as protected by by parliament. And so you see these kind of absolutely wild statements at the time, like Sir Simmons Dews, who's a, a fairly kind of grubby character in, in many ways, a real kind of historical pedant, right. yeah. uh, you know, perish the thought. <laughs> and, uh, but he he keeps these kind of incredibly detailed diaries. And there's this one moment where because he's from Suffolk, he's forced to leave London. He's got a house in Islington. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make this up. He's got a house in Islington. And he's forced to leave London yeah. to go back to <laughs> sleepy Bury St. Edmunds by the king's prerogative. And he says, this is, you know, this is the greatest threat to English liberties since King right. John or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. And it's just a mad yeah. thing to say. But, the, but what it's based on is this idea that it's this idea that the king can't come in and order you around without the people giving their consent in Parliament. And ultimately, the Civil War does come down to a settling of that question. I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of religious dispute in there too. But ultimately, when it breaks out, it's essentially a question of where does power come from? Does it come from God via the king or does it come from the people via Parliament? And and I think that sort of legal, what seems to us like legal pedantry, but actually in the mindset of the time is a really deep issue is quite hard to get our heads around. And the way to do it, I think, is to think about how important the law was. I mean, there's this one a- astonishing statistic, which was calculated by Craig Muldrew, the Cambridge historian, um, oh, yeah. you know, three decades ago now, I think, which is that on average in 1600, the English family would be involved in one lawsuit per year. It is, right. yeah. And I, I was at... A, oh, I'm glad that's I know, not the case and I, I was at um, a sort of legal history event uh, last week. It was a book launch for a, oh. a terrific uh, book by my colleague, Laura Flanagan on the Court of Requests. And in that, the Cambridge historian um, uh, uh, um, Paul Cavill described England in this period as a society which would make modern day America look positively unlitigious. (laughs) And I think, you know, when when it is that kind of world, people have this kind of daily contact with the law, or at least regular contact with the law. They do understand these ideas. And and that, I think, is something which is very distant from our own society. But yeah, the religion is complicated as well. I mean, why are people so animated by where you put the communion table? Yeah, that's a a big, big issue. I had to... Had to appeal to Milton to try and explain <laughs> that he did it rather well. Yeah, actually. but I sort of get it. I mean, I you know d- it, it, it's uh, yeah, it, it sets the tone for the body of the church, doesn't it? And that is a very important thing. So yeah. I kind of do get and the separation yeah. thing. Yeah, but I absolutely agree with your thing about the law. It's interesting, and I hadn't really caught on to it. And you're absolutely right. It's interestingly, going to the American difference of and it's really interesting. Got so many American listeners, and they're often talking about common law and William Blackstone. I mean, a lot of people know William Blackstone. Who the hell in the UK has heard about William Blackstone? <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. You're quite right. And Edward Cook as well. Um, you know, Americans of a particular training would know exactly the significance of Edward Cook. And recent American Supreme Court decisions have cited people like Cook, people like Matthew Hale, who's Lord Chief Justice of, of the Common Pleas. And, you know, all these people, they are seen as important uh, figures. And, and it's, it is interesting as well that, that actually the, 
the legal system of the 17th century is in some ways closer to the modern American system in the sense that, you know, you have grand juries and all these kind of things, which are, you know, institutions which are very, very important in, in the 17th century. And, you know, this is a distinction between a felony and a misdemeanor is very, very important. And the other thing that obviously in the 17th century, you are starting, and again, I'm going to sound quite Whiggish here, but there are, as the century goes on, there are increasing yeah. mechanisms for the legislature to control the government, to control the executive. And, and those mechanisms, you know, well, one suggestion is that the legislature should, should appoint members of the government, radical stuff, or that they should have a right to, uh, to veto members of the, uh, members of the government or, or whatever. But there's also impeachment as well, which is an old process, but which gets picked up again in 1621 and is used quite extensively in the 17th century, most sort of, you know, most famously um, against people like the Earl of Strafford, although it doesn't actually succeed there. And, and you know, that all feels very current in the in the US in a way that you know impeachment yes. hasn't been used in the UK since I think it's 1807 or 1806 or you know it's a very very long time ago Henry Dundas I think was, was it there? okay yes <laughs> it's beyond my period I'm afraid but that's you know that's very much part of the American political landscape in a way that it isn't here I've been really I've been really heartened actually by the response by US audiences to the book it's it's really kind of oh, yeah it's really piqued a lot of interest and and actually one of the things that Americans have sort of said is that they're reading it as a as a sort of dress rehearsal for the American Revolution in a way, which you know, <laughs> obviously that's sort of, you know, as a historian we should be skeptical of reading history as being something which repeats or anything like that. But there is a there is an awful lot of truth in that because it's a, it's about the relative power of the executive, it's about the power of the monarchy, and you know, all things like that, which are important. And that's one of the other things I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to almost say to people. It's not just a bunch of religious fanatics fighting each other across the 17th century. You know, obviously there are bigotries left, right and centre. I mean, you know, the, the, the royalists and the Tories are in, incredibly bigoted against dissenters. And likewise, the Whigs and the parliamentarians are, are, are massively bigoted against Catholics. That's you know, we can't get away from that. These are nasty people in lots and lots of ways uh, to our yeah. eyes. Um, but there is this really important constitutional story. And, and it's sometimes framed as being democracy versus absolute monarchy and that's not really true we're not talking about the birth of democracy here but what we are talking about is we're talking about a transfer of sovereignty from a monarchy which could become absolute towards uh, a parliament which however however kind of imperfectly does represent the people and it is seen as representing the people. And that is something that everyone from King Charles I right down to, you know, your ordinary peasants would have believed that their representatives are the people who sit in Parliament. And you get a transfer of power from monarchy to Parliament in the 17th century. And that's not democracy, but it is a necessary step towards democracy. And again, I'm sounding very Whiggish now. Well, that's, I mean, that's really interesting. Picking up on that point, I was going to ask you later about what the impact of the revolution is. So, or the, sorry, I shouldn't call it that, this, the British Civil Wars. Oh, revolution's fine. I mean, you know, I, I, <laughs> the subtitle of my book is deliberate. It's, it's one in the eye. Yes, I did, muscle, you know? <laughs> I did think you were trying to walk a line there, Jonathan, actually. I didn't know if I'd read too much into no, it. No, 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 no. Uh, I think I think what I am trying to say though is that the whole century is is a yes. revolutionary period. I'm not necessarily saying that any particular yeah. moment is the English Revolution, yeah. although I think you could make a case for lots and lots of different things that happen in that period. But I'm, I think the idea of the book, in in some ways, came out of my background in social history, where I sort of came to the realization that there is an awful lot that changes in the 17th century which is revolutionary but in in sort of deeper social terms so you know you've got the beginnings of kind of global trade and colonialism or english colonialism in this period you've got a big change in the way the economy fits together it's a kind of first beginnings of the proper sort of modern market economy first steps towards the industrial revolution you've got the kind of huge development of science and again I'm, the scientific revolution is a contested concept of course but there are important changes in the 17th century i think I mean, i'm broadly convinced by that i'm not confined to england or anything like that but there is stuff that changes yeah. and you know there's things like the disappearance of witch trials there's things like the kind of settling of the the law there's a big decrease in the amount of interpersonal violence and of course there's the the instigation of the poor law which i see as a revolutionary development so it was trying to kind of capture that but but yeah. yes i mean it is also 
It is also one in the eye to Conrad Russell, who famously, um, for, I think it was his festschrift, was entitled Unrevolutionary England. Ah, right. And then the festschrift for one of his great rivals, Clive Holmes, which was more recent, was entitled rather pointedly Revolutionary England. Um, so <laughs> it, it is partly a kind of intervention in, in that. I, I do see it as a revolutionary period. But, you know, equally, there are different ways of interpreting this. And, and you know, that's how it is. On the Blair Warden thing, by the end of it, he says, oh, you know, this really wasn't a hill of beans, or it seemed to me that was what he was saying, thinking particularly about the civil wars around mm. the whole of the 18th mm. century, obviously. And you mentioned that you thought that American listeners were saying, look, this is kind of like a rehearsal for the American Revolution. Do you think much changed as a result of the British civil wars, or do you think the dial gets reset to zero in 1660? I, I mean, I think absolutely the, di- di- the dial, sorry, doesn't get set back to, to zero. And, you know, one of the sort of mundane statistics, which I think tells us rather a lot, is that in 1640, around about half of sort of state taxation comes from the royal prerogative, the biggest element to that being sort of you know customs tonnage and poundage all those kind of things but after 1660 90% is provided by parliament and revenue as unglamorous as it sounds is incredibly important because the difference there is that all the money that the state has or nearly all the money that the state has after 1660 is money that has been given to the state through parliament therefore through the consent of the people and again it's it's a very imperfect consent and we all know that parliament is not representative in a modern way but the legal theory behind it is really really important to the 17th century mindset and and that really does underline the idea that the monarchy is not able to survive without proper funding from parliament from the people's representatives so there's that and there's also lots and lots of other stuff like the the revolution of if we want to call it that the revolution of 1641 in england whereby the court of high commission the court of star chamber is abolished ship money is declared illegal is maintained there's also at least a sort of lip service to permanent parliaments under the restoration because the triennial act is kept although it is it's it becomes toothless when the mechanisms for enforcing it are taken away in 1664 there's still a kind of lip service towards And that stuff does matter. The other thing I was trying to get across in the book, though, as well, is that in the middle of the 17th century, there's this kind of big explosion of of new ideas. And obviously, a lot of those don't get turned into policy as such. The levellers get defeated and the, the, the Quakers become sort of, you know, not necessarily a fringe group, but they're they're definitely sort of away from power in the later 17th century. But it is a sort of, you know, it's a genie and bottle situation. I'm I'm, I'm writing at the moment, so I'm trying to avoid cliches, but I'm going to use one here. It's a genie and bottle situation. And and a lot of these ideas, they aren't put back in the box, in the bottle or whatever, whatever, Pandora's Pandora's bottle, the genie in the box. Yes. Um, But uh, they're not put back in the box. You're mixing your metaphors, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing I'm I'm on the the alert for. (laughs) You know, particularly in religious terms there's no longer any hope of a sort of uniform anglican congregation after the the mid-century crisis so yeah there's there's a lot of things which change and you know also i I don't think the monarchy is ever ever as confident as it had been in the 1630s Mm. of this kind of what i would call kind of judicial absolutism that they develop whereby basically what happens is the government does something controversial and they don't have parliament to give them a to give them ratification so they go to the judges and the judges of course been handpicked by the king so the judges return the right answer and therefore it's legal because the judges have said so Um, and that's one of the battles of the 1640s in that parliament is trying to say well actually we outrank the judges and 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 we could you know these (laughs) these um, uh, (laughs) these enemies of the people well exactly yeah. yeah And I don't think that's ever really possible later. I mean, there are some kind of tentative moves towards it. We're looking at things like Godden versus Hales, which is about the um, the suspensive veto by the monarchy. But it's never quite as clear cut hard line as it had been in the 1630s. I don't think there's a sense that that's, that's possible anymore. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
felt rather guilty about focusing all my questions on you know, 1640 to 1660 sort of thing. So I thought I should ask you about James. I suppose one of the old arguments was how long was the Civil War and how long did it lead up to? What is it about James's reign that you found particularly interesting that you wanted to talk about? So this is James the First. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that whole sort of high road to Civil War thing, which was the old, very Whiggish view that basically kind of... Yes. Okay. James was basically kind of absolutist, not particularly competent. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment, which was written in the 1950s, I think, and it is very kind of condemnatory of James for being basically homosexual. It's really interesting how much that sort of old homophobia has coloured views about about James Mm. I. Thankfully, we've sort of moved away from that a little bit now. But yes, it definitely goes on to, oh, it was a problem because it it was, you know, it's kind of almost assumed that this was kind of a sinful thing. And, you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a problem because it's inherently bad. And that's the way way historians wrote about it for a long time. It is extraordinary, isn't it? You know, some of the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> some of the sort of the statements that I'm reading in this book, which is not that old, it's 1950s, I think. Yeah. You just sort of read it and you just stop and you say, wow, the people yeah. actually, you know, it's not very objective, yes. is it? <laughs> anyway, yeah. I think James is just an incredibly fascinating monarch. He has a bad rep. There's this whole sort of wisest fool thing where he's sort of seen as a bit kind of bumbling and a bit sort of, you know, uh, you know, picks his nose and, you know, he's full of foul mouth. I mean, in some ways that makes him more interesting, really, because he's... Yes, it does. He yeah. his yeah. words. And he did have yeah. a very foul mouth. I mean, I think his, his relationship with Buckingham is incredibly interesting. And I think we're in a better position as a society to actually see that now than historians have been in the past. But I also did want to... With my discussion of James, I didn't want to go down the high road to civil war thing because I don't think that's necessarily true. But what I did want to do is show that in his reign, there are these kind of deep lying social and cultural problems Mm. which then do kind of feed into the crisis that you get in the reign of his son, Charles. And that's things like in local communities, you've got these big differences between Puritans and I don't call them Anglicans. I'm very deliberately don't call them Anglicans because it's not quite the same thing as modern modern Anglicanism. But, you know, sort of let's call them sort of moderate Calvinists. And on the other side, you've got these kind of what historians sometimes call avant-garde conformists, which are the sort of proto-ceremonialists, Laudians. And these kind of conflicts, and what I was trying to show with the, the wedding in Cartmel, is that these conflicts do actually cut quite deep and they do affect ordinary people in villages up and down the country and of course in in towns and those kind of deep parish conflicts are already there Uh, the civil war then kind of feeds on them and the other thing is that you know lots of the reasons that charles the first i mean so again there's a bit of historiography here lots of modern historians particularly sort of revisionists basically see the civil war as being down to the idiocy of one man charles the first um he's stubborn he's you know he's authoritarian he's obstinate he's just unable to sort of take the <laughs> to, to quit while he's ahead yeah. um, he's he's devious and i think actually a lot of this there is a lot of truth to a lot of this i think he's a lot more devious than than a lot of people admit but still he is dealing with an extremely difficult um situation yeah. you're you're dealing with a world where the cost of running the government the cost of raising an army has become so high and the means of actually funding that are um, are rotting and that would have been difficult for anyone. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter mm. about Charles's personality. It would have been difficult for anyone. And also, you know, in society more generally, there's these kind of deep lying social divides, which I partly link to population growth. And as as you'll right. remember from some of our classes, this is, comes out of the sort of Keith Wrightson school of history, where population is growing in in England, and that's putting a lot of wealth and and influence in the hands of these sort of wealthy peasants, the middling sort, who I kind of say quite a lot about in, in in the book and that there's these kind of social conflicts in in parishes and so what you've got basically is in the early 70s century, you've got a very fractured society the crime rate is through the roof poverty is incredibly severe there's famine in 1623 it's an extremely fraught society now some of that is starting to calm down by the 1630s but what i wanted to show is that the, the civil war didn't happen in a a society which was sort of happily trotting along and functioning nicely and everyone was getting on. There's these deep line conflicts. Government is straining. There's the 
burgeoning kind of problem about what kind of Protestantism we're going to have. So yeah, it was it was sort of trying to kind of reanimate some some long term causes of the Civil War. And I did, you know, I did talk a little bit about, as I say, the rising middling sort. They're of course more literate. They're more likely to have a knowledge of the law. They're more likely to have a vote in Parliament. You've also got this kind of massive growth of London. And in the 1640s, London is described as the sort of chief rebel of the kingdom. It's very yes. parliamentarian. Well, it's more mixed than people think, but it's, it's, it's broadly parliamentarian. And Charles in particular has a real difficulty with dealing with London. He finds it very unruly. I was going to ask you about that, actually. If Charles had done the same as Charles II and had a parliament in, I don't know, Oxford or Loughborough, for example, would things have been different? Would... Yeah, well, it's a great question. And, you know, I was reading I was reading Conrad Russell's immense The Fall of the British Monarchies, which is another one of those Civil War books that you have to read. And there's one thing about the Civil War is that there is just such a huge historiography. And, yes. and it, it takes an awful lot to grapple with it, actually. I think there's a lot of assumptions about that period that mm. people have from sort of light reading. But, you know, there are these kind of really important big books like... John Adamson, The Noble Revolt. Everyone has to read that. You, you have to read that to understand yeah, the outbreak of the Civil it, War. Yeah. You might not necessarily agree with all of it, but you have to read it. Conrad Russell, The Fall of the British Monarchies. Again, you have to read it. It's an incredible work of scholarship. Uh, although I found some mistakes in it, and I'm, it's very heartening because we all right. make mistakes. Even the great Conrad Russell makes mistakes. No, I don't believe that. Oh, I, I know. It's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> but in that, he says, he talks about 1641 and, and when Parliament has gone into recess in the summer of 1641. And there's a discussion because the plague is rife in London. There's a discussion about adjourning Parliament to Salisbury or um, right. uh, I think Cambridge is suggested actually as well. I think Salisbury would have been more plausible for, for the Royalists because it's more of a Royalist town. Although actually, I mean, you know, yeah. anyway. And Russell says that if the plague had only got a bit worse that summer, right. Parliament would have had to be adjourned to one of these sleepy provincial towns and, and the civil war would never have happened. So, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think there's probably, there's probably some truth in that. <laughs> it certainly, certainly couldn't have been a civil war if it was in Loughborough, although you couldn't have had it anywhere, of course. <laughs> uh, going back to the thing about the, you know, the fractious nature of society, one of the things I love about the book is the constant reference back uh, not only to what happens in the parish, and how important that is to most people's lives, given that's where they spend their lives, but also some of the language. So that wanted to pay too many compliments. You know, I think when you're talking about the Oliver St. John's attack on Stratford, you were talking about the language he uses being very much of the countryside of killing foxes. I think it's titled one of your chapters, actually. And I love that in the book, that this is a different world and they think in, in a slightly different way and with a different experience than we have now. And that's what comes over, I think, in the book really well. Yeah, and, this, and Oliver Cromwell describes himself as a good constable to keep the peace of the parish. It's, it, you're right. It's, yeah. um, and again, this comes out of some of my sort of historiographical background as you can probably just about hear a bit of an echo of Keith Wrightson or Steve Hindle or, or any of these right. sort of wonderful social historians who've done so much in the last sort of 30 years to, to change our understanding of English society uh, in that period. So and I mean, Oliver St. John is obviously, um, he's a man whose name gets pronounced incorrectly. One of the big problems with this period is everyone's name is... I didn't know which way to do it, no, no, actually. It right, which is the right I'm way. I'm very impressed. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, what um, on me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and you know, that speech, I forget the actual date, but it's in April 1641, isn't it? And the way that he uses those kind of rustic metaphors yeah. is incredibly interesting. And it, it just shows how it's that mindset. It, it's people, you know, even people who are who are in London at this point, very much in the sort of hubbub of, of a growing city, they are, they think back to their time in the countryside, they, they, they think of themselves as being kind of rural people. And that sort of day to day language, you know, imposes itself on politics, it, yeah. it impacts on the way people see politics. And there's an idea of the sort of plain countryman, you know, and, and John Pym uses that when he argues for the grand remonstrance, he says, you know, I, it's time to speak plainly. I mean, yeah. he's a gentleman. He's not a plain countryman, yeah. really. He's a, he's relatively rich. He's a gentleman with solid legal training, although apparently a lot of debts. You know, there's a, there's another kind of really cynical view of the uh, yes. of, of 1641, which is that parliamentarian MPs have all got loads of debts, partly some of them through the Providence Island Company, which has gone bust. And they don't want Parliament to disappear because as soon as it does, they'll have to pay their debts. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great sort of... I'm not know, going to advance that theory. I'm, I don't think that... <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know. You never know. I mean, 
I was reading today, I was reading uh, some letters from a guy called Edward Nicholas, who kind of pops up in the book. He's uh, Secretary of State to Charles I. And he's an incredibly talented guy. He's one of the ones who really kind of holds it together for Charles and, and helps him mm. build a royalist party in 1641. He's a Wiltshireman. But he, he writes in this letter, he says, you know, I really hope they don't abolish bishops, because if they do, it's going to knock 1500 quid off the value of my estate. And he literally says that in a letter. It's now in the state papers. He's <laughs> completely kind of, completely, I, don't, I don't care about the bishops. I just want to make sure that my estate, which I've spent ages putting together, and I'm not a rich guy, I'm just an ordinary bloke from Wiltshire I want this estate and if these parliamentary bastards if they abolish bishops then I'm going to lose 1500 quid (laughs) (laughs) I'd miss that one right okay so it's not in the book no no this is a this is a new this is a new discovery (laughs) <laughs> morning. Yes, we had quite a lot of Edward Nicholas. He was a rather impressive bloke, actually. Anyway, very impressive. Yeah, and and I think well, that's, that's another thing that I'm quite interested in at the moment. In some ways, there's a kind of view that particularly Charles I has bad advisors, but I don't actually think that's true. I think what he's about got George very Digby. Talent. Well, I think George Digby so, is a nightmare. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I think he's more. <sighs> oh come on. Well, I, so my next book is going to have a partial defence of George Digby. I think is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't. I'm not sure how far he's behind the uh, the five members there. I think he might be, but a lot of the evidence for that comes from Clarendon, who hates right. him. Ah, so there's okay. that. Um, but Digby's also he's a lot more moderate than people think. I mean, he starts off as a reformist and he breaks with Pym over over bishops and Strafford and Strafford in particular, which is you know, which is for me, yes, it's an honourable position. Yeah. You know, it seems perfectly fair enough to me. And then when it comes to the crunch in, in late 1641, I think Digby is one of the relatively more moderate ones with Bristol, his father. I think they're generally sort of pushing for a kind of moderate mm. approach to, to the crisis. Whereas I think, you know, I, I think it's the, the Scots around Charles, people like um, Roxburgh, who's a sort of right. a disgruntled Scottish soldier who's done a murder in, in his like 20s in 1570 or something. These guys are around Charles, and I think they're really pushing him to sort of, right. you know, to, to be more militant. So I think Digby, I, I'm going okay. to stand gonna up defend him. for Digby. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Isn't he largely responsible for attacking at Naseby? I mean, him and Rupert getting away. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the heat of battle, I mean, what would I have done? I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to judge. Okay. <laughs> but Rupert hated him <laughs> Isn't that well. your job? I, I suppose it is a little bit. Yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. it, but, yeah. So apparently, um, I mean, this is, this is the most sort of Oxbridge thing ever, but in my old college, Maudlin, there's a big, painting of prince rupert oh yeah in the um in the in the hall and there's a sort of rumor that rupert had stayed in Magdalen. but i spoke to the college archivist about it and they said no 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 someone's it's almost certain he almost certainly wasn't someone probably sent it as a joke because digby was here and ah, they hated each other so it was a sort of <laughs> erudite 18th century joke <laughs> well that's very that's very nice i'm very impressed because i walked around naseby actually recently with a oh yeah very royalist um, i don't really do battlefield walking but i did it this weekend there's a, a mate who lives nearby and we went with a very royalist man who was very keen on this new biography but of prince rupert he's whereas you oh. describe rupert as a thuggish tough I know I got in trouble for that. You know, apparently he likes art and stuff. But I'm, you know, I grew up in Lancashire, so um, he's the the butcher of Bolton. Ah, there we go. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not taken by the whole sort of Rupert mania thing. Yes. What's the new biography of him coming out? It's probably is it Charles Spencer's? Yes. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In in fairness, I mean that's that's you know that's a serious piece of scholarship. So. it's it's not well, i've enjoyed his books on the um the regicides actually but yeah I just, no i did too i did too it's quite yeah. fun yeah so we've talked an awful lot about the civil wars and i should let you go before too long but we came to charles second and james second yeah. i haven't got there in the podcast yet so i don't know very much about it but it's <laughs> charles has this lovely reputation as kind of the king of bling sort of thing <laughs> horrible histories have done you know done really done the job on the lad and he's always had this positive kind of and yet doing the history of scotland he seems yeah. pretty absolutist as far as i oh, can yeah. see and pretty vicious about it yeah so w- what was the role of charles second you think what how did he affect yeah i mean so the restoration period is, is obviously incredibly fascinating inc- incredibly difficult to get a handle on and, and i think again the sort of popular view as it being this sort of return of partying i think is you know, I mean, it's not completely wrong. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> there, there is a bit of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He did like a good time. He was interested in science. He was obviously quite a personable guy. I think he's had very good historical PR. You know, I, I think was it Ronald Hudson described him as the the lecture in chief or something, which is right. you know, 
And he's also, I mean, he's hugely involved in the slave trade as well. So, you know, yeah. I have a difficulty in seeing him as just this sort of, you know, bubbly good guy. I, I, there's an awful lot of dark stuff there with Charles and with his brother James. And James, of course, is the head of the Royal African Company. And in Scotland, as you say, I mean, the way that he tackles Scotland, you know, he uses a standing army to repress religious dissidents. And he does that in extremely violent ways. I mean, he's not on the ground personally torturing Presbyterians, of course, but he, he allows it to happen. Yep. And there's also these kind of cases of what what is basically kind of extraordinary rendition where he can't have people tortured in England because it's not the done thing by now. Uh, so he has them sent up to Scotland where he can do it. So yeah, I mean, I think he more than perhaps anyone, actually, even more than even more, dare I say it, than Oliver Cromwell, Charles II is an incredibly multi-layered, complicated character. You know, we're constantly sort of, as historians, we're sort of constantly asked, you know, is this person a goodie or a baddie? And, and obviously, you know, as historians, we have is to... Is really that is what you do? Yeah, well, it's a terribly, terribly... Uh, have you got a chart on your, your office wall? I do, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, I need to have a photo of that, yeah, good <laughs> is, bad Who's is. in the naughty corner, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Richard Cromwell's the only one in the, in the nice corner, I think. He's the only oh, one. is that right? Just that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I like him because he just sort of says, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm going to yeah. retire. <laughs> <laughs> quite sensible. He goes off to Hodgson or something, doesn't he? Yeah, yes. exactly, you know. Yeah. Um, um, Not a bad call. Yeah, well, and, and I think... Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Charles. Charles. I. I mean, in some in some ways, I find Charles I a less interesting character because I think in some mm. ways he's easier to get the measure of. Actually, he's yeah. um, he's honourable but very very stubborn. He's a good family yeah. man. Likes things to be ordered. He, he, he's quite interesting in the way that he deals with his his servants. He's much better at dealing with the sort of people yes. like Edward Nicholas, right. who's a kind of ordinary gentleman, than he is with, say, I don't know, Hamilton, for example, who might possibly be a pretender to the throne. Charles II seems to be much better at dealing with everyone. I mean, he really did have a sort of personable touch. Yeah. But his rule is very, very complicated. And then again, I mean, you know, you sort of look at things like the Clarendon Code, which is this sort of repressive religious code. Mm. That is against Charles II's... Uh, he, he doesn't really want to do it. He, he actually wants to have toleration. He's actually interested by Quakerism. Which you know, there's, there's something about there's, there's something almost Cromwellian about Charles, Charles II. In that, actually, I think at heart he wanted to have a lot more religious toleration than his political nation would allow him. But the trouble is, in you know, Parliament is full of bigots, so it basically just says no. We're, we're going to throw these Quakers and these dissenters in jail, and and Charles does his best at some points to try and get them released and and hanged for not going to church or whatever but he there's only so much he can do because he's not as powerful as he wants to be so again yeah i think charles ii is a very very complicated very multi-layered mm. character i don't i don't think many historians have really got the measure of him i, th I like ronald hutton's stuff on him actually you know right. he, he gets closer than anyone and, and tim harris's book on the restoration period are very good about oh, i really politics. enjoyed those um, yeah. yeah yeah very well written yeah, as well really so, and was James bound to fail or was the glorious revolution an inevitable sign of progress or... Um... <laughs> well, I mean, Charles did do better than James, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, I think true. so. Um, what I sort of argue towards the end of the book is that a lot of James's problems do actually come out of the end of Charles's round. I'm not saying it's necessarily Charles's fault or anything like that, because actually he's dealing with quite deep lying structural problems whereby society is more polarized and it's more politicized and london is more active and there's more people reading about politics there's more people having strong opinions about religion and, and everything like that so i think <laughs> as weird as this sounds i think it's quite hard work being a king in the 17th century it's, it's probably harder work than it is in the 18th century well it's almost definitely harder work than it is in the 18th century yeah. it's probably harder work than the 16th century although that's maybe a bit controversial one for debate maybe but one of the things that I think happens in Charles's reign is that he starts out in 1660 with actually quite a lot of goodwill because everyone's sick of, not republicanism per se, but the, the chaos after Oliver yeah. Cromwell died. There's sort of two years of absolute chaos and everyone's sick of it, which is understandable. But so he starts off the reign with quite a lot of goodwill. He squanders quite a lot of that quite quickly, partly by being unsuccessful in foreign policy. But what r the real turning point is the exclusion crisis, whereby you get this kind of development of two parties at Westminster and across the country because they sort of filter out I, you know I was reading about how in Reading they had something called a Tory feast which is for all is the that right? Tories okay. yeah it's coming you know a bonfire and you know turkey on spits and stuff I don't know I don't know what a Tory feast is. big like. on bonfires actually I noticed in the 17th very big century, on bonfires yeah very big, big on bonfires, bonfires. Yeah, yeah by the end of Charles's reign he's he's able to hang on to power 
and he does that very successfully. But one of the chief ways he does that in England is by cultivating these Tories. And so instead of the monarchy being a sort of unifying monarchy as it had been in 1660 it had become a tory monarchy by uh, 1685 and james james finds that hard to deal with because the first thing he does or within two years he manages to alienate the tories so (laughs) his natural support base he's kind of lost Um, but it is partly that does partly come out of these development of party politics which is not really his fault you know that's just how politics was going it always seemed to me actually that in terms of tyrants they're not that great are they no. A bit hard to complain about Charles I. I mean, I suppose he kind of was, and James II, but they're not that bad, really, are they? Well, I think, I mean, I think with Charles I, the, the, he, he gets called a tyrant because he does things like taxing people without their consent hmm. or imprisoning people without trial, which, you know, is kind of a bit tyrannical. Um, but we are definitely not talking about a kind of Stalin figure here. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a sort of legal tyranny. And it's a tyranny to the common law mind, I suppose. Um, mm. Where I think, I mean, I, I realise that we're recording this the day before the 30th of, of January. Yes, one I was going to mention to be it. careful that wasn't, one doesn't cause offence. But I, I, I do think the one no. thing that, well, there's, t- there's two things really about Charles, which are sort of more, let's say, tyrannical, shall we? And one is the constant plotting that you get, um, particularly in 1641. I mean, there's this sort of plot to take control of the Tower of London in, in November. There's the, the incident in Scotland, which is, you know, looks basically like a plot yeah. to kind of overawe Edinburgh and have a load of people either put on trial, but if there's resistance to simply have them murdered. And Charles is, you know, I mean, he manages to make it look like he's not involved but he is knee deep in the incident and and you know as any historian who's kind of looked at it in any detail will tell you that that he's very much involved in that and then there are similar kind of plots in in england and and the five members thing as well which sort of again looks kind of you know you get these kind of justifications from it it's like oh well probably they did commit treason and you know blah 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 whatever the way he does it is a very questionable legality because instead of putting an impeachment before the commons he puts it before the lords using the attorney general which is problematic because the lords is supposed to be the courts he's not using due process which again is a bit tyrannical yeah. but the, the thing that really kind of blows it for charles and actually kind of leads directly to his execution is is when instead of taking one of the programs which was on offer in 1647 yeah he decides to just have another war let's try and win it back let's yeah. get the scots in let's have another war so loads of people die who didn't have to and that's where i think he really does end up crossing a line i think for so many people again we're not talking a sort of 20th century dictator here it's a sort of you know he's an absolutist he believes that he's basically above the law you know he doesn't go around having people shipped off to exile or or murdered in their beds or anything like that but he does take a lot of decisions and get involved in a lot of plotting which causes a lot of unnecessary death and i think that's why people are so agitated by him in 1648 there's a little nuance of the new model army is a very interesting topic that you know half of you thinks hey this is great they're talking about democracy thinking about you know universal suffrage or male universal suffrage on the other hand they're very very religious and they're an army and you know it's the period the whole century is full of nuance yeah difficult yeah difficult questions which aren't don't have an easy answer yeah no absolutely absolutely and and it's you know you you sort of look at what happens in in 1648 where you get on on the one hand an army of kind of religious hardliners puritans not all of them i mean you know john lambert is not particularly um religiously extreme but a lot of them are you like john lambert i like john lambert a lot but you know you look at people like thomas harrison for example who is Mm. I mean, if you're being polite, you'd say he's a zealot. If you're not being polite, he's a fanatic, he's a fundamentalist. You know, Henry Ireton as well. People like this, they have very, very strong religious views. And of course, you know, Oliver Cromwell as well. And, you know, they march into Parliament and they they exclude people from Parliament. It's a military coup, right? Yeah. On the other hand... Parliament is not very representative of the people. The New Model Army is more representative of the people because it's more socially inclusive. There's no women in it, of course. There's, you know, it's more socially inclusive of, of, of men. And you've got this kind of problem where in their eyes, what they're about to do, what Parliament is about to do, is they are about to bring another military catastrophe on the country. They're about to create, yeah. start another civil war. They th- that's what the army thinks. Um, you know, it, it's complicated. And, and I, think, I think it's a century which just doesn't give us easy answers, which is why we have to tackle mm-hmm. it. And I think anyone who yeah. gives you easy answers on this century who, who sees it as black and white, 
easy to understand uh, i i think they're selling you snake oil i think it's a very very complicated century and i think that's why yeah. it's so important but there are different ways of looking at it and that's great that's what history is about i mean i totally agree <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean so if if you had been you know you're in 1603 and an english person in 1603 and then you were an english person in 1703 what would have been the biggest difference you'd have noticed in 1703 it's a terrible question isn't it no no it's a great question actually and it's a really good one to think about because there is a line of argument that actually right. you wouldn't notice very much difference i don't think that's true i think you'd you'd see that the People were better fed. The economy was more buoyant. There was much more support for the poor. There was a much more um, vibrant commercial economy. People had spent more time in towns. They were more literate. I think you'd find that some of the heat about mm -hmm. religion had gone out. It was no longer quite such an apocalyptic environment religiously by, by 1703. I think you'd notice that there had been a, a significant change in the political landscape at the centre. I think you'd notice that the, the monarchy was no longer quite so important as, as it had been. You'd be paying more tax, you would, um, uh, but you'd be, you'd be more likely to re be reading the newspapers. Yeah. You would, you'd probably find that, you know, gender relations were quite similar. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot that had changed there in a lot of ways, although there are women authors by this point um, in ways that there haven't been before. So there's an awful lot that's 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 changed. It's a very change-driven century, as far as I'm concerned. There are lots of things which are which are similar, like you know the power of the aristocracy remains very very strong. It's still a largely rural society. The the, the harvest is still the the heartbeat of the economy. Mm -hmm. People still are, are mostly, or how about half of people are are in farming. So there's a lot that hasn't changed, but I think there's it's a very different world culturally, economically, politically. It's a very different yeah. world in 1700 to as it had been in 1600. Well, I think that comes out beautifully in the book, and you make that point very much. Also, you make the point that uh, one of the things that wouldn't have changed is you'd still only have two sources, but you would have 30 religions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, did enjoy, I did enjoy your Voltaire quote. Did you work out what the other, what the other source was? Obviously, there's gravy. What else is Tomato there? ketchup, maybe? <laughs> HP. Maybe. HP Has that been invented by then? <laughs> well, HP sauce. I do remember finding one of the earliest references to ketchup uh, in... <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Yeah, because it's a Malay word. Um, so it's um, it's a Malay oh. loan word which came over through the East India Company, I think. So yeah, <laughs> I don't think it was tomato ketchup. That was sort of uh, mid seventeenth century, I think. Fact, fact, best best fact of the uh, conversation so far. <laughs> I didn't mean that, obviously. <laughs> anyway, John and I've I bored you longer. I had lots of questions about Cromwell and religion, which I'm not going to ask you now because I've taken enough of your time. <laughs> but I love the book. I love the blending of of all the elements, social, economy, politics, uh, all the the voices of the people speak very well too. It would have been lovely to talk a bit more about Catherine Chidley and some oh, of the yeah, women yeah. who, I mean, I realise that things don't change a lot for women, but there's still they, there are a lot of female voices, which I, I found, mm. on, you know, all sides of the divide. Which well, when I do my next one, Catherine Chidley will feature, so we can talk about her next. Will she? Okay. <laughs> my next Fantastic. It's very good. I've read out a bit of Catherine Chidley in the podcast. Oh, brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, I have really loved your book. I'm sorry I've, I've used it. I probably owe you a lot of royalties <laughs> because it's a really rich resource. Good. So I've thank really you. enjoyed it. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. And thank you very much for spending an hour or more with me you've been you know i could talk forever on it but, well thank you very much david it's been a real pleasure thank you very much and good luck with the rest of the um rest of the of english history yes. or british history sir yes <laughs> and good luck with uh, good luck with the new book look forward to that thank you Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes. 
while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.